Look, payday's awesome, but running payroll, calculating taxes and deductions, staying compliant, that's not easy. Unless, of course, you have Gusto. Gusto is a simple online payroll and benefits tool built for small businesses like yours. Gusto gets your team paid while automatically filing your payroll taxes. Plus, you can offer benefits like 401k, health insurance, and workers' comp, and it makes onboarding new employees a breeze. We love it so much, we really do use it ourselves, and we have four years, and I personally recommend you give it a try, no matter how small your business is. And to sweeten the deal, just for listening today, you also get three months free. Go to gusto.com slash boss. that's gusto.com slash boss. Hello, and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson, and I'm Kathleen Shannon. I'm Paul Jarvis, and I'm Being Boss. In this episode of Being Boss, join Kathleen and I while we talk to Paul Jarvis about being a company of one. As always, you can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't quite made the leap to working for yourself, there's a good chance that your idea of how challenging it will be to be your own boss won't exactly match up with the reality of how challenging it's actually going to be. Now, this is not an attempt to talk you out of it. In fact, it is the exact opposite because there is so much amazing help available. You've just got to know where to look. Our friends at FreshBooks make ridiculously easy cloud accounting for small businesses and have helped millions of folks just like you make the brave leap to being their own bosses. Using FreshBooks is kind of like having your own administrative assistant who's got your back 24-7. So you can set automatic late payment reminders and you can have FreshBooks do the chasing. So goodbye awkward money conversations. And with the new proposal feature, you can create a living professional document for your project and have your client sign online so you can get to work faster. It is so incredibly legit. To see how FreshBooks can support you in your quest for becoming boss, we want to offer our listeners an unrestricted 30-day free trial. Just go to freshbooks.com slash being boss and enter being boss in the how did you hear about us section. Paul Jarvis is a veteran of the online tech world and over the years has had such corporate clients as Microsoft, Marie Forleo, Mercedes-Benz, and even Shaquille O'Neal. Today, he teaches online courses, runs several software businesses, and hosts a handful of podcasts from his home on an island on the west coast of Canada. His next book is called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing. All right, let's do this. We've got our boss boyfriend, Paul Jarvis, on the show today. Paul, how's it going? It's going good. I love you guys. Aww, I think that's the only, yeah. you're the only people that I would say that to. Like if I'm a guest on a podcast, I don't think I, I can't think of anybody else that I would say that to. Well, you but. maybe should just start them all with "I love you." I love you. We did a huge listener survey, and one of the responses was, make more stuff with Paul and Jason. (laughs) That is fact. That is fact. I I think you've been on the podcast maybe more than anyone. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think so. But it's also been a while since you've been on the podcast. So for our listeners who might not know who you are, can can you tell our people who you are, aside from our boyfriend? 
Sure. So, on t- I mean, that takes up most of my time. But when I'm not <laughs> doing my boyfriend duties, um, I don't know. Like, to be honest, I don't really know what I do. So, I do stuff on the internet. So, I make and sell online courses, mostly around freelancing and marketing. I host a couple podcasts, uh, like Invisible Office Hours, Creative Class. I'm working on a new one. Um, and I write. So, I write a newsletter called Sunday Dispatches. And I've written a book called Company of One, which we may touch on in this episode. Maybe. maybe. We'll see if we get to it. Yeah, just, just a touch. Those are, I, th- that's, I think that's what I do. That's yeah. what you do. Just a man of many things. It's really funny. I was talking to a coaching client recently, and she was telling me, it was like the introductory call. She was telling me what she does and what she wants to do and and all of these things. And she's similar, where does things on the internet, knows lots of things about internet things, and uh, wants to grow her business and those sorts of things. And I was asking her, I was like, do you want to grow a team? And she was like, no, I don't like managing people. I want it to be just me. It's like, you sound like a Paul Jarvis if ever I heard one. <laughs> nice. Right? It made me think of you and how it is that you've been able to grow such a sort of life and work for yourself, just doing things that you're good at and collaborating with people in really interesting and cool ways. I I love that you don't know what to call yourself because I don't think there's a word, Paul. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't I don't think there I don't think there is either. At least one hasn't been invented yet. Well, here's your chance. If anybody listening wants to invent a word for all the things I just said, (laughs) tweet me. Right? Make it kind and then send them an email. (laughs) And it's funny because it goes against a lot of what we say whenever it comes to branding and positioning yourself as an expert and, you know, really narrowing in on a niche so that you can attract more of your dream customer. And I think that you have been through that trajectory and now you can really afford to kind of follow your curiosity and do what you want. And I think it is because you have... Um, you you are flexible and you can be nimble as a company of one. And because I think paired with your minimalist lifestyle, which we might also get into, I think that you've paired out a lot of distractions, not only like materially, but energetically in your mind space as well. And digitally as well. Ooh, like digitally. Did you I just like throw that. a bunch of stuff away I was say, off your I bet box? you have nothing on your like desktop screen. I don't. I have have two things. David Pell wrote a cool article that I want to reference at some point. So that's on my desktop. And there's an interview with Ben Chestnut, the CEO of MailChimp and Fortune Magazine. I have two things on my desktop, which are just two things that like, I want to do something about at some point, but I haven't. But that's it. Yeah. Take a guess at what my desktop looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. (laughs) That's my guess is that it's just everything. It is. It is everything. I love it. So, okay, let's talk about some of this, some of this minimalism and how it is that you've found yourself, or I guess my first question is, were you always this focused on keeping out distractions or was it a journey you had to take? Yes to both. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> to, ex- to explain that, I think I've always, because I've worked for myself since like, 1998 or 99 so it's been a little while and I think in the beginning I was definitely 
I cared less about growth and more about betterment, like better, like bettering my income to like bettering the services that I offer to bettering my products. Like I've always cared more about that than growing. And I, I don't think I would be a good manager, but it wasn't until uh, 2011 when I started to think like, I think there's something here. Like, I think there's something to this other than me being a fucking weirdo and like not wanting to grow my business. I, I think there might be more to it and there might be, uh, like more in terms of there's something valid that people might resonate with. Because in the beginning, I thought like, I'm the only person in the world who feels this way about business. And then I started writing about it. And then I started to get hundreds of people replying back like, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. And I'm just like, let's all just raise our hands. And this like stupid pun, but there's like a growing movement of people who don't want to like grow their business. And I think that's really what... I focused like since then I was like okay I think there's something here and then I focused on that since and yeah I, it's just it's just interesting to me it's just super interesting to me that there are different ways to do everything like regardless of what like thought leaders on the internet say there's more than one way to run a business there's more than one type of person who should be an entrepreneur there's more than one way to basically do everything so you went down the rabbit hole with this and wrote an entire book about it. And I actually really do want to dig into the book because I've read the book. It's incredible. And I think it's incredibly valuable what you're um, teaching here. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from it, whether you are a side hustler that is still working a day job, or maybe even you have a company like Emily and I do. We are not just companies of one. We have partners, we have employees, but there's still so much that you can gain from the philosophies here. So first, I want to do some defining here. How do you define company of one? Because like the word company and the word one, doesn't that just mean freelancer or no? Well, no, but I'm glad you're asking that because I think that that, so I think the title of the book is like really catchy and like my agent and publisher really like gravitated towards that. I still think it's a great title, but I think it's slightly wrong because when I'm talking about a company of one, I don't literally mean a one person business. Like in the book, like, like you, you read it. So like I taught like Basecamp and Buffer are probably my favorite companies of one right now. And they're like 30, 60, 80 companies. So I think the definition here of company of one and what the company of one mindset really comes down to is just questioning growth. Like, does growth in this way, in this area, make sense for me? Whether I'm a business of a 1,000 people, 10,000 people, or one person. And I think that's really what it comes down to, is just saying, okay, bigger isn't always better. Better is better. So what does that look like? And even for myself, like, I'm not a one-person business. I have three business partners on three different projects. I have... Uh, audio person, I have a copy editing person, I have a video person, I have an animation person. Like, I have a bunch of people. Like, I still think I'm a company of one, but I've kind of defined what makes sense for my business specifically, and then I work towards that instead of just working towards, let's 10x all of the X-y things and, and go from there. Right, because let's talk for a second about like what most people's conception is around starting a business or a company. And because the idea is that you start the thing and you grow the thing. Where I think even most people don't even define a cap for themselves. Like, because part of the like joy, even perhaps, 
or seeming joy of starting something is this idea of complete and utter infinite growth possibilities. So they don't define a cap and they just keep going for going's sake or because it's believed, I think, that if you are starting a business or a company, that growth is the purpose. Yeah, and a lot of that comes down to capitalism as we know it now is kind of fucked up. Like when you think about it, it's kind of messed up because the way that it works is that growth is perceived as always good when in reality, it's not like even thinking about like all these people that are like, oh, I want to be like the next Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs and stuff. And like I'm watching the hearings with like Zuckerberg <laughs> sitting there sweating with his nerdy shirt on. And like, I'm like, I would I, never want to be, you couldn't pay I, me I, enough to be that. Exactly. Like I, like I don't, like I, I would not want that. Like I, I would sacrifice. And same with like famous people. Like, I would never want to be so famous that I couldn't go to the fucking discount grocery store and get my recycled toilet paper. Like, that to me is just like, <laughs> uh, it boggles my mind. That, such a weird example to give, but like... <laughs> I, do, I feel I like you just told our audience so much about yourself, right? <laughs> if anyone needed to know anything about Paul, there exactly. you go. Great Canadian superstore, best prices on toilet paper. Thank you. <laughs> The recycled okay, one, so, please. But I want to come back to this because, Emily, you're saying like part of working for yourself is not putting an upper limit on yourself. At the same time, I feel like a lot of our audience is like, what are you talking about? I just want to be making enough money to pay my bills doing what I love. Like there's not even that maximum, you know, where right? do you want to cap but out. But if you get there, <laughs> it's usually, uh, you usually find yourself not wanting to stop. I suppose. Like, yes, I do imagine that most of the people listening to this are, you know, are just trying to make it to a place where your side hustle is your full-time gig. But I've seen it over and over. Once you get to that goal, the idea of stopping usually doesn't even cross your mind. And it's growth for growth's sake that you just keep going along. And so maybe this is a chance for us to, you know, explain to everyone who is listening who hasn't found themselves at that place yet how to better act <laughs> once they find themselves in that place. Yeah, and I, I love this. And I'm glad you're bringing this up because I think this is so important. And I think this is why a lot of people are rubbed the wrong way about minimalism specifically, because I think that there's kind of two distinct stages in, in business and in life in anything where it's like pre enough and post enough. And I think the way that you develop a mindset is different for each category. But a lot of times people in the pre enough stage don't change their mindset when they actually have enough. And then I think that's where it's bad. So if we talk about this a little more, because I think this is this is probably one of my favorite talks. I don't even know if I talk about this. I don't think I talk about this in the book. But this relates <laughs> so much to the book that I think it's really important. So I think what you were talking about there, Emily, is is pre enough. Like if you're just starting, there's no way you have there's no way on day one, you open your doors and you have enough like that's very That'd be very difficult to do where you have enough income to support yourself and your family, cover your mortgage, and put food on the table. So I think in pre, in the pre-enough stage where you're working towards like this full-time gig or doing what it needs to sustain you in your life, you do have to hustle. You do have to grow. You do have to do the things to 
increase revenue, customers, all of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like that to me is part of business. That to me is part of every business because it's not a, if you're not making enough money, then it's not a full-time business. You can get there for sure. But until you do, it's still a side hustle, which is fine. Like I have side hustles now and like I've, I've worked for myself forever and I still have those projects where they don't make enough where that's my full-time gig, but they're things I like doing and they're making some money. But where I think the problem comes in and where the reason why I wrote the book is that people don't stop to think that they've blown past their pre-enough mindset into post-enough. And they're just like, okay, I just got to keep hustling. Like when I started out, I was working like 12, 15, 16 hour days. And like, that was hard. Like I'm old now. If I was doing that now, I would need stronger glasses. (laughs) So I think people don't don't stop to think about or they don't stop to take stock when they've reached enough because it's not really what business teaches you. That's not what capitalism says. It's you need to increase like publicly traded companies are a great example of that where they don't have their customers or their employees best interests in mind. They have their shareholder, they have increasing shareholder revenue quarter per quarter. Right. So I think if we stop to think like, have I actually reached enough and if I have, now I can adjust and optimize for having enough. And I think, like I said, that's where I think a lot of people have problems with minimalism. Because like, if you're listening to somebody talk about how they've like pared down their house and they have like 32 meticulously placed items in their house and you're like, I can't even pay my fucking rent, then there's going to be like some discord there. Because it's like, how dare you say that I should be living with less when I don't have enough? So I think that there's two distinct mindsets that need to happen there where it's like, in either case, it's fine. It's a fine place to be in, but your priorities and your purpose changes from one to the other. Okay, I have a question. Where do you draw the line of what's enough? Especially if you are an ambitious entrepreneur who who is, I don't want to say blindly chasing growth, but growing with intention, which I think is something that all of us have done. Where do you draw the line to say, okay, this is enough and start optimizing? What's the line of maybe even questioning that you go through to figure out what that is? Yeah, so there would prob- probably be a bunch of questions uh, for that because I think a lot of times we're so busy working at our business. We don't spend any time working on our business and we don't spend time reflecting on like, so a couple questions that I think I would ask myself to determine if I was like in that post enough stage would be things like, do I actually want or need more? How much is enough? And how will I know when I've reached enough? Is there a metric like whether it's income, whether it's hours work, whether it's number of customers, like is there a metric that will determine what my enough is? And then what should change if I reach that goal? Um, A lot of times growth comes down to our own ego, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like if you're at a dinner party, and this is a conversation I had with Jason Freed, which is in the book, is it sounds cooler like at a dinner party with people you don't know to say like, oh, yeah, I have a company that has, I own a company with like 100 employees versus like I work for myself from home. Like there's just that ego of like more seems better, is perceived as better by other people. So if that's the case, maybe you just need to hang, you got to go to different dinner parties, like more vegan potlucks or something. Other (laughs) questions 
<laughs> would be. I'm always going to throw non sequiturs in for you, ladies. It's just not. It's Love just it. always going to happen. Um, other questions right, would so be. Now would... we know that you're into <laughs> vegan potlucks and recycled toilet yes. paper. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let's see what else. What other Easter eggs we can collect throughout <laughs> this episode. <sighs> other questions would be, and this is a big one: is does being bigger or growing help or serve my existing customers more? Because sometimes that's not the case. Another thing is, what are the maintenance costs associated with saying yes to this opportunity or building this feature or adding this new product? Um, and then more personal things to start to think about is, how does this grow? How will this growth affect my happiness? Or how will this growth affect my daily responsibilities? Because say, like, when I was a web designer, and that was my only job, if I grew... And I had opportunities to grow because I had like a long waiting list. I had people wanting to invest and make it an agency. But I was always like, well, if what I love to do is designing websites for people and I grow, then I'm only going to be managing other people designing websites for clients. And that's not what I want to do. So the growth in that aspect, in, in that respect, doesn't make sense. I think those are all the questions that I would that I would pose as a business owner if I was thinking about growth. Because sometimes the answers are going to be, yeah, this makes sense. And then, yeah, you should grow. Right. And I love that at the center of this, it's you. It's like you as the person who's going to be doing the thing, what do you most want or want to accomplish? And I think so often, you're right, we're looking for that outside validation of like, are my neighbors finally going to get what it is that I do? Or, you know, is my mom going to be more proud of me? Or whatever it may be, this idea of growth. When you're the one who has to show up and do the thing every day, it's probably a good idea that you're excited about it. Yeah, exactly. And really, like, I think if you're doing business right, working for yourself, it's really just hedonism for profit. Like, if you're doing things totally right, you're doing it because you enjoy doing it. Otherwise, you would work for somebody. Like, if you enjoy working for somebody else, then there's no reason to work for yourself. It's harder. But if you do enjoy it, and it is something that's giving you what you need out of life and you're making money at it, then cool. Like you don't need to change things up uh, dramatically. Okay. But then I I don't know. We need to talk about this because I feel like it does get hard and chasing that hedonism, I think is what gets a lot of people in trouble whenever they could be an amazing entrepreneur. But the second something goes wrong, they're like pivoting, you know, and changing their business model or rebranding and or going back to a day job or doing all the different things. So can we talk a little bit about resilience and what's involved there whenever it comes to chasing hedonism for hire? Yeah. So I think the the so first of all, the hedonism has to kind of be balanced between like your customers and you it can't just it can't just be about you because nobody's going to pay you to be happy although i'd 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 probably not there might be some there may be some weird examples yeah so i think resilience is one of the most important parts of being a company of one and in in writing the book it involved a lot of research and there's this guy called uh, dean becker is the ceo of adaptive learning systems he studied resilience since the 90s and He found through these studies that resilience above things like education, training, or experience is what's going to determine success in business or for a business as a whole. So being resilient as an entrepreneur or freelancer, whatever the heck you want to call yourself, is 
probably one of the most important things. And there's three traits for being resilient. The first is accepting reality because there's really not a whole lot we can control in life. Even though we think we can, we kind of can't. The next, the second trait is a sense of purpose or having like a North Star. So even if things go wrong or even if things fail, you're still working towards that greater purpose. And then the third thing is the ability to adapt. And I think out of everything that an like out of everything you need to put in like your entrepreneur or your boss toolkit is the ability to adapt because things change all the time. Markets change, people's sentiments change. Everybody could be like, "Oh, webinars are the best thing ever, and webinars are going to grow your business." So you do webinars, and then like three months later, webinars no longer work, and you're like. Wah, wah. So you have to adapt. You have to adapt. You have to change. You have to find something else that's going to work because just because something's working, especially when you work for yourself, just because something is working today doesn't mean it's going to be working tomorrow or the next day. And in a year, it's probably not going to be working. Okay, so you I've always have to be become... changing. I've become like super skeptical of what's working for other people. And I mean, this is why we all podcast because we're digging into these things and really figuring out what works for ourselves and figuring it out as we go and testing and changing and all the things. But I feel like whenever I'm on Instagram or Facebook and I see an ad for, let's say, like a Pinterest strategy, I think that's great. But I think if someone's already advertising to you, like grow your Pinterest strategy is probably already too late. Am I being uh, yeah. too pessimistic? Yeah, no, I totally like that agree. strategy is already come and gone. Like if you <laughs> did it, succeeded, had time to create a course around it, figured out Facebook ads or Instagram ads, and now you're selling it, that strategy doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, oh, go ahead. No, you go. You're our guest. <laughs> oh. I wanted to know what you had to say, though. Well, I guess I'm just saying that this is where I think people struggle with some of our content sometimes is that it's not a quick fix. Like we are teaching and wading through these philosophies and concepts that are long term solutions that do help you build up resiliency and our toolkits that aren't simple formulas, but really things that you have to like put into practice for years and years and years. Yeah, and it's a tough. I sell the same thing. Like I sell the hard, the harder long term solution, and it's tough. It's a tougher sell. There was an episode of Reply All um, about drop shipping, and the reason I bring it up is because what they found in their research was that people don't make money drop shipping. They only make money teaching other people how to drop ship. Oh, like, there's no money in drop shipping. There's only money in like making a course or doing like a paid webinar on drop shipping. And I feel like that's the internet right now. I feel like that sums up everything on the internet. I know. That is or fact. like even like my thing with life coaching, where I feel like you make money coaching by te- teaching other people how to be coaches at this point. Yeah. It okay, there becomes so- like peak whatever it is there's peak right. whatever it is and then all you can do is make money teaching other people to do it not just doing it wait so how do you because i feel like you're still in it doing it so how do you combat all of that is that by staying small and being a company of one yeah a little bit a lot of it comes down to i would rather teach like the processes or like the technical know-how as opposed to just like do these six things and 
you will get X because I can't promise. Like I can't promise that. I don't know how. To, I like I don't know how to do that. But I know how to. Like I'm a I'm a nerd. Like I'm a systems and processes guy. So I can teach people how to set up their own systems and processes for doing things like freelancing or email marketing. I don't know how to teach people like do this thing and you'll get this. I'm like here's all of the things I know. Here's all the things you need to consider. Here's how you could set up a process. Now do that on your own. It's a hard, it's a worse sales page. (laughs) (laughs) It's not super sexy. Um, I want to rewind a little bit to the resiliency and the adaptability piece of it, because I want to talk a little bit about expertise. And I know that you talk a little bit about expertise in general, like you have lots of thoughts around it. And so I want to dig into your thoughts and feelings on expertise right now and Sometimes I feel like that can box you in from being adaptable, but maybe not. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so there's a few things about expertise, which I kind of, like, I, str- I struggle with it. So I think that being an expert kind of pigeonholes you into something. So I, I try really hard to not, like, I have a vegan cookbook, an online business book. Like, I I teach email market. Like, I try to do as many different things as possible because I don't want to be known as like person that does X. Although it's way easier from, and you know this, Kathleen, like it's easier from a branding perspective to be like that person who knows and does X. But I, I don't know, I just feel like labels are for jars and like I really buck hard against identifying with one specific thing. Like I don't really... Like, I am vegan, but, like, that doesn't define my identity. So, I like, and same with, like, online expertise. The other thing is, like, I don't, maybe it's because I'm Canadian or maybe it's because I, like, am bad at, like, thinking of myself positively. But, like, I don't want to be an expert. Like, because I don't feel like I am. So, I feel like I know a lot about a bunch of things and I'm more than happy to talk about them. But I'm also happy to give the caveat that this is these are the things I know based on my own experiences and my like my data set of one. And that's I think the biggest thing I have a problem with with expertise is that people take what they've done to succeed at one thing and said this is how it works. And if you did that in science, you would be laughed. Like all the people in lab coats would be like tiny data set bro like get a bigger sample size <laughs> i'm sure that's exactly how scientists talk i'm sure of it i guess for me though whenever it comes to thinking about being a creative entrepreneur solopreneur freelancer whatever you want to call it company of one i find a lot of security and expertise and i feel like whenever i need to cultivate some confidence i can come back to okay here's what i know But then also allowing room for curiosity and flexibility because this is the freedom that we all crave whenever it comes to working for ourselves is to be able to do whatever we want and really just trusting that, okay, if I follow this new path. Okay, for example, I remember um, just three years in, maybe even less than that, of starting my branding agency, Braid Creative, which I already had expertise in from working in advertising for five years. I decided that I wanted to do some coaching training with Martha Beck. And at the time, I was like, is this going to diffuse my expertise? What does it mean for my identity and who I am in this online business space? But then trusting that, okay, maybe this will somehow fit into the bigger picture. And now in hindsight... 
you know, years later, I can see all the threads of how it all comes into my business and my business vision and how it all works together. And it's like, I feel confident in that I know myself, like I'm an expert in myself. And a lot of that piece of the pie is in branding, but then also like podcasting, even we all three have a course together on podcasting. And now we're, you know, quote unquote experts in that because we have a lot of hours under our belt. And then how does that fit into the branding picture and the coaching picture? And now I can see how it all fits together in hindsight pretty clearly. So I don't know, these are me working through my thoughts on expertise because I find a lot of security in it, but I also find that pigeonholing like I don't want to just be doing one thing I kind of want to be known for one thing but I want to be doing lots of things yeah I'm kind of the same and I kind of the way that I kind of wrap my head around it is that I'm not really an expert I'm just further along than some people in a couple areas where like I know my shit about a bunch of things I don't know if I would call myself an expert but I feel like I want to share what I know on those subjects and I think that 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 to me feels good but like I wouldn't call myself like an expert or a thought leader or something like that because that doesn't really feel like authentic or real to me but I like I love learning so I feel like I'm I'm probably the only thing I'm an expert at is learning like I spend hours a day learning stuff because I I love the things that I'm really interested in and I'm going to do and learn as much as I can and I feel as well the more I know about a subject the more I realize I don't know about a subject, like I think something is like just this and like, oh, just learn this and I'll be good. And then I get into it. I'm like, oh no, like yoga. Like for the longest time I was like, like six months into doing yoga, I was like, okay, I I can do advanced classes now. Like I get these, I get the level one vinyasa like down. I got the flow down. And then the more I learned about yoga and the more that I studied it, I was like, there's so much I could be doing or learning in like the beginner or the level one flow classes that like, I'm just going to stay like, I still, and this was like, I've probably been doing yoga for like 10, 12 years now. And like, I still just do level one classes. So I'm like, there's so much I could be learning uh, mostly about like the kinetics and the specific movements and position. I'm like, I just need to know more about this and then I'll move on to level two and I still haven't. So. Yeah, I want to speak for a second going back from yoga to to having lots of different like skills or buckets of knowledge in your own brain. I always think of it in terms of and I, I for a long time was like, you know, become an expert at something like we all go to college to get degrees in a thing, to go get a job doing that thing, to do that thing for the next 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it may be. Like, we're all definitely taught that a uh, taught this idea of diving into a subject, learning everything you can about it, becoming an expert, and then that just being your path. But as a creative, and after we've talked to so many creatives over the past couple of years, and read a couple of super interesting books about the subject, um, I've gathered this idea that, you know, the real... The real availability of like creative energy and insight and perspective doesn't so much come from getting so narrow in a subject that you know everything about that one thing. It comes from having knowledge in several different areas and then then being able to take that compendium of knowledge and come up with something completely new and different by combining all of them together. And I think that's where... 
That's where you get this perspective that no one else can have. So basically, you can become an expert at being yourself and whatever that looks like and it really being a combination of everything that you've ever done or everything you've ever studied or everything you've ever dove into in terms of your interests or curiosities. And those are the kinds of things that give you the ability to have, you know, moments of creative awesomeness or the ability to make decisions in your business that are unlike anything that's ever been done before. Because I think we can all agree that what's happening in business right now is unlike anything that's ever happened before. And what can happen in business is unlike anything that anyone could ever imagine. And I think it's going to be those of us who explore many topics and maybe in some ways become an expert at none of them. Are we able to become a quote unquote expert at whatever it is that we create sort of what word am I thinking of? Um, I don't know. Mash together. The mash is not the word. But you know what I mean. I think that the problem, though, is whenever we see people just kind of flitting from one thing to another, whereas I think all of us, whenever it comes to whether or not we feel like an expert, the things that we're digging into and learning we're spending years on. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking years. It's not like we just did five podcasts and then stopped. <laughs> we did. Yes. We're in four years of podcasting or, um, you know, designing websites. You guys both did that for years and then took those skill sets and mashed it with something else. So I do think that there is this level of maybe not expertise, but maybe commitment like some commitment to doing a thing for a while so that then you can, like you were saying, Emily, take some of that knowledge and skill and apply it to something else. And I think that there's a certain amount of, I don't know, I keep thinking about like the privilege that comes with expertise, right? And so like the privilege that comes with minimalism is that you can afford to not have a lot, right? And I think the privilege that comes with expertise is that you can afford to say that you don't know what you don't know, or you can afford to take bits and pieces of it and then apply it to something else that feels a little bit riskier, I suppose. And I remember the word I was trying to think of a second ago and it was collage <laughs> you're trying to collage together Montage. right bringing back the whole like creative um energy into it because i think of it as like creating a life that is a work of art if you will and you take all these different um all these different topics or ideas or interests or whatever and you can put them all together to create something beautiful so there you go yeah that that was beautiful thank you <laughs> Mash yeah. was significantly less beautiful, but whatever. I got what you were saying, but then you just made it, you just like upped the eloquence game. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I think it's true. Like, I think a lot of the people that I look up to got really, really good at one thing. And that wasn't very interesting. But then they got they got really good at that thing. And then they're like, okay, what can I take that thing? And how can I apply that to all of these other different things? And then it becomes it because exactly what you said, uh, the, like creativity is 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 com- is combining things, right? Like even like the way that I market is pretty much how I used to market the band that I was in when we were booking tours in North America. Like all of the things I learned about marketing first came from like being in an indie band and being on the road, and then well, it's like I have an online talk business. About that, <laughs> what have so- you learned about marketing from your indie band? Oh my I'm goodness. I'm being serious. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's a bunch of things and I think it was I so one of the biggest things was always trying to figure out like 
the value, like it wasn't just about me because I was in charge of doing the 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 media booking. And then my wife, because the band that we were in was me and my wife and a couple other people. And she was in charge of booking the venues. So I did all of the like PR stuff. So for me, it was always like, okay, how can I relate this to value for this like publication? Or it was mostly like college radio stations when those existed. So it was mostly like what, like, what would be interesting for them about us instead of just like, hey, I'm in a band. Can I be on your show? It's like, what interesting thing can we talk about that your audience could benefit from? Wait, and so what did that look like? Um, a lot of times it was in? like listening to, like figuring out what the show, like what they had on the show or like what the college was interested in or like even like just funny things like figuring out the the host MySpace because this is like when MySpace was a big thing. So figuring out who the host was on and seeing what their interests were on MySpace and like relating it to. So like even that's a good example of that. So I emailed DHH for an endorsement for my book. This is and, David Heinemeyer Hansen, yeah, my you, boyfriend. You did, a, you did a great interview <laughs> with him, which is why I'm bringing him up. And so in that, e- I didn't know him. In the email, I emailed him about the about the book, but I also talked about cars. Because, like, we both love cars. We both love racing. He's obviously, like, really good at racing, and I just like racing for fun. But, like, that's the kind of thing that I think Stan, like, he's endorsed the book now. And, like, he probably doesn't endorse a whole lot of books, is my guess. But, like, just things like that, where it's, like, relating to another person as a person instead of just, like, here's the thing. You don't know me, but here's what I want from you. It's, like, that doesn't – I don't think that yeah. works. Yeah. <laughs> I know this makes me think about, I've been, I told another friend about this recently, the hot shit 200 list, and I feel like I've talked about it enough times on being boss, but I'm going to mention it again because it's been a while. But one of the things I like doing whenever it comes to pitching or, you know, collaborating or anything is making a list of 200 people that you're interested in, that you admire. It could be specific people. It could be brands. And this can be on a spreadsheet and then put in their Instagram handle, put in their URL you might realize that you're not even following them on Instagram and you totally admire them or that you haven't signed up for their newsletter. Sign up for their newsletter, hit reply and tell them why you like them. Like just build this relationship and eventually this hot shit 200 list will turn into something so much, it will open doors for you. And I think that this is just a really small example, but it allows you to get to know that person. It's the equivalent of finding them on MySpace and seeing what they're interested in and just connecting with them on a human level. Yeah, but because you probably find them interesting, like regardless of what you think you might want from them, you probably find them ridiculously interesting and just want to get to know them. Right. Like it just makes sense to me. It makes so much sense. Yeah. All right, what else? What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> That's like the worst interview question ever. <laughs> this is this is how I talk to my friends or like my sister. I'm like, okay, so what else? <laughs> what, what else is there? Um, okay, I want to talk about some tactical things. Okay, we can do that. Okay, so whenever it comes to questioning growth, and it comes to growing. <laughs> 
how do you balance that? Like, and I'm thinking about things like hiring contractors versus employees, things that allow you to be a little more nimble or things like how do you manage your time to get it all done, especially if you don't want to work with any contractors or employees Um, or what kind of processes or automations can help you be more efficient in just being one person. Like, let's say going back to your web development days, and that's what you want to focus on is actually developing a website How do you maintain your focus around that and still do all the admin business stuff? Yeah. So for me, it always, and I said this earlier, like it always comes down to processes like or or processes because I'm Canadian, even though most of my friends are American. So I say like most of the American slang or pronunciations. (laughs) But I think like a lot of creative people think that their creative work cannot have constraints. Otherwise, it won't be creative. But I think in reality, like creativity thrives on constraints. And the reason I could do so much web design work when that's what I was doing is because I had such a set process. Like, this is exactly how long this chunk is going to take. This is what we're going to do. And I would be very explicit with my clients. Like, this is how long the project is. This is everything we're doing basically every single day in the project. This is why it's getting done in 30 days and not open-ended because like if I booked open-ended projects I don't know when I could take on other clients so I always had like the best systems and I was always relentless about okay if I'm stumbling on this step or if clients are always stumbling on this step then we're changing this step and so it was like an evolution of of process and I think the other thing is like I always try to weigh like how much this is going to cost me in terms of time versus how much this is going to cost me if I just pay somebody else to do it. Like podcast editing. I'm sure I could figure out how to be a really good podcast editor. My podcast editor charges a really good price. So I'm going to pay. I'm just. It's easier just to pay him. Like I make money on sponsors. It's easy for me to just give that t- to him. It's just like my copy editor. I am the worst at finding. I'm the worst writer technically. Like, I'm really good at putting ideas down that kind of make sense to me with funny stories about recycled toilet paper. But I'm really bad at, like, typos and grammar and all of that. So, like, I have to pay... Like, for the longest time, I had my wife do it. But then I started to write so much that, like, I couldn't... (laughs) Hey, do you have, like, six hours today to to copy edit my work, honey? And, yeah, it's just just too much. She's like, I gotta go put out a fire. Exactly. (laughs) I'm busy doing life-saving shit. So... But yeah, so like for me, it's always that. Or it's like the other thing that I like to think about is like, would another person, would it would I be better off working with another person on this project? Like I have three partners right now, but they're not partners in my business. They're partners in specific projects or products that I have. So like Kaylee Moore and I do creative class. And, like, it wouldn't make sense for me to work with her on everything. Actually, it probably would because she's a really good copywriter. So I could could benefit from her skills on everything. But for this, I just work with her on that. I have a partner for Fathom Analytics, one of my software products, and a partner for Pico. It doesn't make sense to make a company of, like, these three people plus me. But it makes sense to work with them on specific things. And that way, like, I don't have to work with them on more things if I don't want to. I have a question about this. Do you yeah. partner with them so that you're not like, why aren't you just paying Kaylee versus partnering with her? Is it so that you don't have that upfront cost and then you both are incentivized to make it work? Um, so one is the incentivization. The other thing is that I like if I know that I need help on something long term and I know that I don't just need help, but input and insight, 
then it makes more sense to partner with somebody. Like, she's constantly coming... Like, if I was paying her as a freelancer... Uh, she probably would because she's really nice. But like she, because we're partners on this project, she's always sharing like, hey, what if we try this thing or add this thing to the course or do this for the students? And I'm like, I want her to think like that. Like I want her to feel ownership in that project because I feel ownership in that project. Same with my other partners. Same with when I do stuff with Jason. Like it only makes sense for us to work on things as partners as opposed to just like hiring somebody. Whereas like my copy editor, I only like he's awesome, but I only need him for one very specific, like very focused thing. Whereas my partners, I need them for like vision stuff as well. Okay, I have another question. What if someone came to you and was like, "Hey, I want you to write a book on creative class." Then are you doing that with your partner? Like, whenever a project scales, is I guess what I'm asking. What happens? Yeah, so we look we look at that. So like the the split for course sales is different with Kaylee and I versus the split with podcasting. So it's different for everything. So the 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 contract that we have or the agreement that way, like it is a legal contract, but it's also just like a logical, reasonable agreement with each other is that when we're working on something, we're working on it. If something new comes up, then we renegotiate. That's... So it's like really project specific even oh, yeah. within that brand that you have that partner. Do you yeah, have an operating I mean, agreement? Yeah, we do. We okay. have a contract that we sign. Same with um, shareholder agreements because the other two things are companies. So we have shareholder agreements and it's like we just have like one share each or whatever the breakdown is. But yeah, we just have agreements with each other. And it's good to have these conversations first too. Like for Danny and Jack we basically talked about what we wanted out of the business. Like if every single thing goes right, what do we think that looks like? Because if it's not going to line up, then we're going to get into tricky situations. Like for one of the projects that we're working on, somebody offered us a million dollars to like build the project faster. And if we were not, if my partner and I weren't on the same page, then one of us would be like, heck yeah, I want a million dollars. And I'd be like, what are we going to spend that on? Like, <laughs> That sounds cool, but, like, what do we need that for? And I can't come up with anything. So, like, it makes sense to be on board with a partner, not just, like, where you are now, but where things could potentially go in the future. Because, like, if your visions are different, then, whoa. I know. I even think about that as far as, like, being boss and the growth that we have. And Emily and I have very much been on the same page. But what if we were just partnering on each aspect of being boss? So we're partnering mm -hmm. on just the podcast. And then we're partnering on, you know, just the book. But then I'm trying to think about, like, what that means for the rest of the brand. I That's that's interesting. I'm going to have to wrap my head around that. But I love that idea just as far as the incentivizing goes. And then also a lot of creative entrepreneurs don't have the money up front to hire somebody. So it does make sense to partner because you both have skin in the game and it's less overhead and it's a win-win situation. Yeah, and it's two, two Or a lose-lose situation. Yeah, <laughs> that, that too. But yeah, it's two, it's two minds. Like I think when people feel ownership, like when I was doing client work, I care. Like, I wanted every one of my clients to succeed. But, like, if they didn't contact me and ask for something more, I wasn't really... Like, I'm not thinking about them if I'm not working on a project for them. Whereas, like, the the my product, the ones that I own, I'm always thinking about them. Like, what can be made better? Where can we find wins? Where can we do a little bit of work and get a, a bigger reward? Mm. I'm have to wrap my head around that one, too, for sure. Because I also think, like... 
going back to if they were employees, I think if, right, what is the difference then between having an employee for whom you are providing so many things um, versus a partner? That's well, and then also think about creative control, you know, and I, it's just a lot of conversations up front. You know, like who's still the boss boss if, if shit goes down. Yeah, like you're, you're business marrying this person. So yeah. you get like if you're not talking about politics, religion and kids before you get married, like you're probably going to have some tricky conversations. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is something I've been wanting to ask you about. Because I was listening to your <laughs> podcast, <laughs> Changing Tracks. This here. could go anywhere. I didn't realize that you were like such an investor. Yeah. I, but not even like, I'm not even a, like, I'm a stupid investor. But I do, like, I've always thought that savings are a good idea. And so how does that play into your philosophy of a company of one or even your business or your feelings of security or ability to take risk? Like, does that play into it at all that you're, do you feel taken care of because of your own savings account? Yeah. And I think even if you work, like, I think in terms of like mindset, even if you work for somebody else or work for a massive company, like you've you've really got to think about yourself as a company of one because nobody else is going to give a shit as much as you do about your financial security, right? Like a company could fire, like a company could fire you at any time, basically. And so I've always thought like, it's weird because like on the one hand, I, and Jason and I have talked about this on Invisible Office Hours, like on one hand, I don't want to retire because I love my job. But on the other hand, I want that FU money where I can just work because this is this is like I just dig doing this thing as opposed to like, okay, well, I, I know I need to make this amount of money. So I cover like my mortgage and my organic vegan food and my recycled toilet paper. I'm just going to keep coming back to that. This Please whole do. episode. Please yeah. do. So I think that having savings, and I think that it's so funny because I was watching Hard Knocks, which is a pregame NFL behind the scenes, and they're with the Cleveland Browns this year. I can't remember who the player is, but he was talking about compound interest to like the other defensive linebackers or something. And like he's got this big whiteboard where they're usually like going over plays, and he's talking, he's showing like how investing like a hundred grand and compound interest apply to that equals so much more money in 10 years and 20 years and a hundred years or whatever. Like, this is awesome. This is reaching like peak market penetration of talking about things like compound interest because like these NFL players and like they make a lot of money. So like they're going to see some huge returns on like four per whatever index funds pay out at. And right now it's a lot because it's Super Bowl market like it's paying out a lot higher, but like if the average is about 4%, then you're going to start to see some savings. Like even for myself, like I started investing when I was about 20 and it wasn't even like, it sounds cool. Like, oh, I was investing at 20, but like I was putting away like $50 a month. Like, right. and that's, that's like, that's what I had to put in, but $50 a month over like maybe 40 years where you're earning your earning potential of working is going to add up. And then like, as I started making more, like I know what enough is in terms of like what I need personally for my personal revenue a year to cover like my cost of living. Everything past that, that my business makes just goes into index funds, like cheap index funds through a robo advisor advisor, like just on the internet, I just transfer the money. 
And then I see like, oh, this month I had like nine percent. I made like nine percent, and like that shit adds up. I so I listened to your episode of Invisible Office Hours where you were talking about this, and I went in and bumped up my four hundred one k from four yes. percent to six percent, just a nice. little bit. But like that makes it like it doesn't make a difference, right? Or it doesn't seem like it makes a difference now because it may be like. or $50 or $100. But then, like, if you look at the graph, like, in 20 years, it's like, oh, you have $1.2 million or, like, $3.6 million. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yes. All right. What is the one thing that you want people to remember if they're buying Company of One, your book? Like, what do you want them to remember from it? Like, what is a just good key takeaway? Yeah, I think the key takeaway is in that you don't have to be anti-growth. Like the book really isn't anti-growth. Like growth makes sense in a lot of cases. But I think what you need to do is question growth. So whether it makes sense for your business, your customers, and yourself. And I think if we start to focus instead on making our businesses or our lives better instead of just bigger... I think that feels like a, that feels like a takeaway for me. I don't know. Other people might be like, oh, okay, that's boring." But like for me, that's like this is huge. Like I started when I started thinking this way, and when I started to like wrap my brain around this, I was like, "Such a fucking weirdo!" Like, why am I the only person who thinks like this? And then I started sharing it, and other people were like, uh, "I'm a weirdo too, Paul." And so, like, I think there's a lot. Like, there it just comes back to like there's more than one way to do business, and you don't have to be like a zuck to win at business. Like you can win at like the stories in company of one are mostly stories about people who are just like having such a good life and they make good money, but they don't need to make more money to have a better life because they just have a good life where they're at working on better and optimizing for better as opposed to just bigger. I love it. Where can our listeners find the book? Ah, Everywhere that books are sold, that's the one good thing about having a publisher is it's in is it's in Target. I don't like there aren't even Targets here, but like you can get it in Target apparently. What? Yeah, Amazon, Audible, uh, every independent bookstore. If they don't have it, tell them to get it because they can probably get it pretty easily. Nice. Target some good distribution. I I didn't even know Target sold books because. I'm not they in I'm not in America. Few. It's a big deal. That's a big deal, Paul. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Um okay, and what's making you feel most boss right now? That's a good question. So, I think where I'm at cuz I know this episode comes out a bit after we're talking. So, I think the thing that's making me feel the most boss is people that I really admire and love endorsing the book. Like you ladies. Aww. Like it like I am at the point right now where I'm like they're starting to come in from people and I'm like, oh, this is so nice. So yeah, that totally makes me feel boss right now. Uh and I can't wait for the day that your book comes out. Like just all the like excitement. Uh it's such a good feeling. I'm so excited for you. Yeah. And thanks for sharing. you 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 guys have been sharing a bunch of tips like privately for for book stuff with me because you're much further along in the process than I am so thank you for that as well I appreciate it anytime thank you for coming to hang out with us Paul yay (laughs) (laughs) hey bosses I want to tell you about the CEO day kit 
The CEO Day Kit is 12 months of focused planning for your business in just one day. So Emily and I have packaged up the exact tools that we've been consistently using for years that have helped us grow from baby bosses to the CEOs of our own businesses. Gain clarity, find focus, get momentum, prioritize your time, make better decisions, and become more self-reliant with the CEO Day Kit. Go to courses.beingboss.club to learn more and see if it's a fit for you and your business. Thank you for listening to Being Boss. If you're looking for more help in being boss of your work and life, come check out our website where you can find episode show notes, browse our archives, and access free resources like worksheets, trainings, quizzes, and more. It's all at www.beingboss.club. Do the work. Be boss. Thank you.